0: Our guest today is Timothy J. Lombardo, Assistant Professor of History at the University of South Alabama and author of Blue Collar Conservatism, Frank Rizzo's Philadelphia and Populist Politics. And that book is the focus of our conversation. Thanks, Tim, for joining us on Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. So this is in some ways a modest book. It's about a um, decaying city, uh, which both of us dearly love. Uh, over a relatively short period of time. It's about the hopes, dreams, and aspirations, the uh, the anger and the frustration of people living in it, and about one um, interesting but not, uh, you know, certainly far from national historical person or world historical, let alone world historical person. Um, and yet it's also a very ambitious book, which, um, as its title suggests, is I, and I think is explaining something about the political culture of our own moment. Um, it leaves, I have to say it leaves a very bad taste in my mouth after I finish it. Um, the only thing that I can compare it to of other, uh, conversations on historically thinking is, uh, Barry Strauss's death of Caesar, <laughs> which was an episode 11. Uh, after I read that book, I was convinced, uh, that, And reading your book, I came away uh, basically disliking everybody uh, in (laughs) late imperial Rome and 60s and 70s uh, Philadelphia and convinced uh, that there was nothing that could ever have been done to save either the Roman Republic or the city of my birth, Philadelphia. And so thank you, Tim Lombardo, for sending me into a spiral of cynicism and depression. Uh, I can't say
1: that that was my, uh, that was my aim, but uh, I can see where you would get to come to that conclusion. I,
0: I think that you might have been relieved to have finished writing this book uh, because it is, it's it's a sad book. It's sad. Sure. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, uh, reading chapter one and reading about uh, Edmund Bacon and planning commissions, I, you know, put down the book or put down my Kindle and mentally think over Philadelphia and think this was planned We planned this (laughs)
1: parts
0: (laughs) parts of it. Yeah. uh, uh, Those are some of the worst. Um, So why don't you uh, give us the sort of the elevator pitch, describe what the book is about, Uh, give us a a narrative and uh, I'll break in occasionally to interject questions, but you know, what are you describing here? Uh, For one thing we should say is this is not a biography of Frank Rizzo, although he is in some ways the representative actor in it.
1: Yes. So, so as I say in the book, it's not a biography of Frank Rizzo, but his rise and fall is central to the story I'm trying to tell. Um, the people, this the actual subjects of the book, are his blue collar, white ethnic, uh, you know, lower middle, some to middle class uh, supporters, and um, you know, in a lot of ways, the the initial impetus was uh philadelphia as a case study for the historical roots of those who will later be called reagan democrats Mm -hmm. it evolved i mean i still kind of use that framework a little bit but it evolved from there to um seeing this as uh, a populist variant of modern conservatism uh that is you know center right not not as right as you know barry goldwater not as right as ronald reagan but uh to the center right. that I argue stems from uh, a mutually reinforcing uh, selective rejection of welfare liberalism, meaning that the people I'm looking at don't fully reject the idea of an activist state, they don't fully reject the idea of liberal programs so long as they go to the people they think are quote unquote deserving. And how that is reinforced uh, with a what I, what I call uh, support for law and order conservatism, um, very uh, pro-police action and, and, and sort of the roots of a, more, a much more punitive um, law enforcement regime in the United States, especially in urban America.
0: So um, in some ways, uh, are you describing people fighting over the the scraps of the welfare state?
1: Yes, very much so. I mean, yes, and I mean, this is the, one of the the background of this entire story is is the decline of the welfare state in the 1970s, right? And, and so, uh, it's not that they oppose ideas like urban renewal or all of these programs that had long been at least an attempt, if not fully successful, to rebuild American cities. It's just they don't like that a lot of these programs by the 1960s and into the 1970s really are focused much more on or or they think they're much more focused on African-American areas of the inner city rather than middle class areas the way they had been 20 years before.
0: Mm -hmm. So this this whole discussion is impossible without understanding sort of the rise of the I don't know what to call urban liberalism, as you call it, within Philadelphia. Right. Within Philadelphia, So we have to describe, Philadelphia is a very unusual political situation compared to other cities prior to, what, election in 1951? Yes. Uh, it had, of all things, a Republican machine. So yes. de- describe a little bit of that.
1: So the Republican machine, oh, geez, almost uninterrupted power since oh, close to the Civil War era, a um, little later than that. And, and,
0: um, and very much based upon the... Um, Waving the bloody shirt and basically, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and suppressing the Democratic Party. Yeah, the, the Union League and and right in downtown Philadelphia is is, right. not, is near City Hall for a reason.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and, and and I mean, this is very famously Lincoln Steffens' *Shame of City* is is the you know er, the Progressive Era expose of the Philadelphia's corrupt uh, machine that lasts for another. You know, close to 50 years, uh, that that almost uninterrupted. I mean, it, the like it's it's fascinating if you look at like um, the electoral map of 1932, uh, the the huge FDR's huge lands, uh, landslide. One of the few states that goes Republican is Pennsylvania because of Philadelphia, because of the Philadelphia Republican machine,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they are, I mean, just by, by the 1940s. Uh, they are it is an utterly corrupt and I mean, it's it's not the Republican Party of the 21st century This is uh, this is very not very different than what you would find in like Tammany Hall to that those sort of politics No,
0: it's very similar to other machines uh, Right in, in Boston and New York. There's a lot of similarities to say Curly's Boston or I guess J- Jimmy Walker's uh, New New York era
1: Right, and 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 the partisanship of it being a Republican machine is almost incidental. It's not yeah. entirely, but it's. I mean, you could find Democratic regimes that were that, or, or machines that were uh, that operated much the same way, um, but they were. The, the corruption had sort of cast a uh, a shadow over the uh, over the city that, especially the city's business elite, was beginning to see as a hindrance. Um, and so beginning in 1948, they, 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 there was a business elite and and liberals kind of together, um, started what they called the greater Philadelphia movement to sort of wrest power away from this Republican party. I mean, in this, I mean, it's, 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 I don't get into this as much in the book, but it's fantastic. Like there are a rash of suicides among Republican politicians in the city who are getting, uh, you know, caught on on corruption charges. And so it's, it's very, very clear by 48, at least that, um, people want to change, like the, the, that people are kind of sick of this, this machine and going into the 1950s, uh, there will be adopted not only, not only Joe Joseph Clark's first democratic mayor of Philadelphia in uh, you know, well more than a half century. Um, uh, but also the adoption of a new city charter, which will at least, in principle, be there to uh, not allow the kind of corruption that had just taken place for so long to to happen again.
0: So um, Clark was Clark a former Republican? I mean Richardson Dilworth was, uh, but they sort of broke from the party to basically destroy the part. I mean, to, in order to create a new Philadelphia was sort of the yeah, idea. I
1: don't. I don't. I don't think Clark. Was, I don't know if Clark was. Yeah. I know Dilworth was a former Republican. They but they they were both. You know, they were both delegates to. The Democratic uh, um, National Convention in 48, the yeah. famous Dixiecrat revolt, you yeah. know, they were, they, so they had all, they had by the 1950s fully bought into the Demo- the National Democratic
0: Party. Oh, oh, sure. But they were, I mean, in, in many ways, they were progressive Republicans of an old school who were yeah, finally right. get, getting it, the way they, they had to reform the party in Philadelphia was to become Democrats and create a Democrat right. movement. Um, one of the really interesting things is from the moment and you, you touch on this um, in chapter one or the sort of the unintended consequences of the uh, of this sort of, of new liberal urbanism and it reminded me of the the Friedrich Hayek quote um, <laughs> with, uh, the un, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design um, th- <laughs> th- th- there was a huge progressive optimism in the 50s yeah. still continuing that uh, they could really manage what Philadelphia would become. So describe a little about. I mean, one of thing the things is the the classic progressive proliferation of boards and committees and right. sort of semi quasi non governmental organizations.
1: So so some have argued that uh, what happened to Philadelphia in the nineteen fifties was really the progressive era coming to the city half a century late. What do, you right? th- do you do you agree? Uh, not entirely. I mean, there's a, there's an, there certainly is a part of that because. Um the, the emphasis on expertise, the, oh, yeah. expertise, the, the emphasis on oversight, on, on, you know, take the power away uh, from city council, put it in the mayor's office, give the mayor all of these, uh, you know, uh, the mayor's office be, be far more expanded to include all of these other boards that will look over things. That's very, very progressive era. Um, yeah. But I also think, uh, at least especially with Clark and Dilworth, by the time they're actually... Uh, you know, by the time or Clark is elected mayor, Dilworth, uh, a district attorney, and Dilworth will become mayor after that. By the time they're they're also fully imbibing the uh, the New Deal ethos, and also the especially important in Philadelphia is the um, commitment to civil rights reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, arguably, I think Philadelphia has a, a stronger commitment to civil rights reform than any other city in the nation in the 1950s. Uh, but as you correctly pointed out. You know, they had there's there's this in, in real belief in the promise that of what urban liberalism is going to do, but the actual uh, um, implementation of a lot of these plans never goes exactly as it should. Yeah. Or as or as they thought it would.
0: No. So let's we we should describe I think a little bit of the Philadelphia's sort of cultural geography. So mm-hmm. it's uh, you actually uh, this is the first time I've ever seen a list of all the neighborhoods. <laughs> uh, is in your book and it's what 100 hundred, hundred or more. Yeah. yeah,
1: that was a hard that was a hard map to get in there too because, yeah. like say, it's, it's actually that that map was in, where I originally found it was on two pages And we and the publisher didn't want to take up two pages so We kind of had to squeeze it in there, but it's like I think it's really important that we have this yeah, and so We got it as we got it.
0: So Philadelphia is as you say, it's the fourth largest city in the 50s um, And yet it's very different than the other sort of top five cities. Why?
1: because it is so local i mean it is so it is so parochial in times of i mean there are sections of the city uh that i discuss uh that uh you know they're in philadelphia they know they're in philadelphia but they refer to themselves as the neighborhood not you know so um the, i should i should point out that the. I, I constantly, while it's about all of Philadelphia and I occasionally venture out elsewhere, I primarily focus on Northeast Philadelphia and South Philadelphia, mm-hmm. largely because those two areas um, gave Brizzo some of his biggest uh, support. They were both largely, uh, overwhelmingly white, uh, working and middle class. And so that, that was where my case studies were. And, and so, in you know, there's an area, of, uh, a neighborhood in Northeast Philadelphia, Bridesburg where the you know a local slogan was this isn't Philadelphia, this is Bridesburg. You know, that <laughs> that they, that that they define themselves so much by neighborhood. Yeah. Um I have you know people in, in the northeast when in, and northeast Philadelphia um you know is very, very small until after World War Two. Uh or or it's not small geographically, it's huge it's, it's
0: huge, small. It's huge, yeah, ge- it's geographic. huge geographically yeah.
1: but it is um it is sparsely populated, especially uh, the far northeast. Is, is incredibly sparsely populated until after World War II. I, I think I I'm, I know at one point there was still more farmland in nor- in far northeast Philadelphia than there was housing in 1950.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know that's and that's in that one of the things that makes Philadelphia so unique is that you don't see a lot of cities by the mid 20th century that have that much undeveloped land. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons that that this was that that they saw this as an era of promise is that look at all we can do. Look at all we have that nobody else does, that that, that we can do something about the problems of industrial congestion. We can do something about the problems of overcrowding, because all we need to do is real is open all this land to new housing, to new uh, industrial parks, that sort of stuff. uh, but this all also happens to coincide with uh, the continued influx of African Americans from the South. Um, yeah, uh, there's only in between the height of African American migration to Philadelphia is in World War Two.
0: Okay. But
1: by the 1950s is only nine percent less than that height. There's still an, a, a, an incredible like two, another two hundred thousand people. You know, in the, over the course of the 50s, um, but because uh, of a lot of these sort of the hyper local locality of Philadelphia's um, cultural geography, it was very difficult for uh, newcoming African Americans to find anywhere to live in any of these white neighborhoods, and so they all. Um, primarily crowded into North Philadelphia, which, as I say in the book, will become the center of of Philadelphia's urban crisis.
0: Yeah, so the previously the African-American community had been along South Street. That was the historic uh, African-American community, um, just south of uh, Richard Allen's church, Mother Bethel, which uh, we just discussed in a conversation with Richard Newman uh, about abolitionism. Um, Yet, uh, with the influx, with the Great Migration, that the locus, it really moves decisively into North Philadelphia, um, what at the same time, uh, we were discussing, uh, where we were sort of chatting before we began recording this, inc- this neighborhood consciousness, uh, in Philadelphia, you know, I'm suspicious about how far, how, uh, how old it is. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, if it wasn't being heightened, uh, by the great migration, uh, by competition for jobs. Um, if there weren't other things making people particularly um, neighborhood centric, uh, I think that, you know, historically, I mean, in most cities, neighborhoods tend to be always be in flux and to move around. Um, you would not know really along South Street that it was the historic core of the African-American community. Uh, and there are other neighborhoods in, in Philadelphia that change from one ethnicity to another.
1: Right. That's so. So it's both of those, you know, and it really, really, because even in these places where I say that there is like a, a distinctiveness, a stubbornness about leaving, these are constantly and I, and I, I refer to them book the, the, the evolving boundaries and the and the uh, the, you know, contested boundaries. Neighbor, neighborhood boundaries are not, you know, fixed. People would argue about where one neighborhood ended and another began Yeah, you know? some, of the, some
0: of them are so ridiculously small How would you, you know Right
1: like Queen's Village, how
0: big is that? You
1: know? Yeah, not not very, uh, not very big at all Same in the neighborhood I grew up in, not very big at all And, yeah. and I knew, and everybody in my neighborhood had a different uh, argument Over which street was the end of it <laughs> um, And so, but there was some Depending on the neighborhood So Northeast Philadelphia had You had a couple of these older, there was far northeast and then you had places like Bridesburg, um, Port Richmond, uh, Wissanoming and and places like that that were that had been there along the river uh, for a while. And, you know, like if you look at Bridesburg, for example, Bridesburg is, you know, got the river on on one side, uh, the uh, railroad tracks on the other. And it is kind of hemmed in. Uh, And for for some time, you know, for. Generations and almost entirely Polish Catholic, they do ident- They do develop a a very strong neighborhood identity. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Kensington and the, the Irish Catholics. And you can date Kensington's identity, you know, almost to the that one almost to the 19th century to the anti Catholic riots yeah, I, I uh, think of the, so. the mid 19th century. Yeah. South Philly is a lot more in flux. South Philadelphia is a lot more in flux. Anything um past uh, anything getting into the far northeast. Is barely even a neighborhood. Right. There's no. There's no. There's no consciousness about neighborhoods. Everyone there is just getting there. So there are places where it's, um, where it is, There is a longer sense of neighborhood identity. But what you're correct in in assessing is that uh, because of the Great Migration, because of the competition for jobs and because of all of those, that identity becomes stronger and in a lot of ways politicized here. Like it it becomes less just about where you're from as opposed to um, as we were, you know, talking before we started, you know, or the or uh, or no, I was talking a few minutes ago that, you know, these areas that were not quite Philadelphia, even though they were. Um, that becomes a far bigger point of differentiation and defensiveness when it's when it comes to be about about housing and jobs and things like that. And,
0: and also, we should say another thing in Philadelphia is that it is very much a manufacturing city. Uh, for, Absolutely. I mean. Uh, New York is more of a manufacturing city for longer than people realize. Um, it's only recently become solely a financial services city. Um, most, um, Chicago, also a manufacturing city, but Philadelphia was really a manufacturing city. Um,
1: Light industry mostly, you yeah. know, it wasn't, not heavy industry. We're not, we're not Pittsburgh, you know. It's, uh, well, butted,
0: but. I mean, even so there was Baldwin locomotive uh, yes. and there was New York shipbuilding, which confusingly enough was in Camden. Um, uh, New Jersey, which is sort of, a I don't know, an inner core suburb of all things, uh, yes, right across sure. the street, I mean across the river, uh, with lots of ferries going back and forth to Philadelphia to take workers over. Um, and right. and the Navy shipyard. Uh, those are th- those are pretty ma- uh, those are pretty it wasn't Detroit. It wasn't right. Pittsburgh, but those are still major, yes, uh, manufacturing. And yet, of course, everyone I've mentioned, locomotives, uh, shipbuilding. In the '50s, those were already starting to tank earlier than other yes. other things.
1: Right. So You still had fair. You know, the the hosiery industry that ha- wouldn't leave until it wouldn't leave Kensington until later. Until it until they moved south, like a lot of industries did in the '60s and '70s. Yeah. Uh, but you had a lot of those, and you and you had, had not only manufacturing but heavily unionized city.
0: Yeah, that, that which is an interesting part of the book too. The uh, the weird. We, the weird vagaries of union politics are all part of the story. Um, one question you, you mentioned, let's talk a little bit about how political power is uh, funneled. Uh, mm-hmm. You talked that the city charter had uh, the sort of the greater Philadelphia movement had redone the charter. The mayor was now a, a much more important executive. You rarely mention the city council in the book. Um, my memories as a kid, I mean, this is, you know, I, God knows I know nothing about how Philadelphia politics works is always of endless fights in city council over this and that um what's this blue collar conservatism you're describing um does this cup up through wards does it come up through uh city council elections or is it purely an uh through mayoral politics
1: um in ways okay so we, i would say it begins. Sort of in the wards, and it begins on on those local levels. Uh, But by the time we get to Rizzo, it's very much centered on, I mean, Rizzo's. I hesitate to use the term cult cult of personality because I just don't like its connotations. But I also struggle to figure, to to come up with a better term. It's
0: hard to come up with a better uh, term.
1: Yeah, so, but if you look at his predecessor, uh, James H.J. Tate, Tate was president of the city council prior to becoming mayor, and he very much—I mean, a very blue-collar mayor, or, you know—to not not to the extent, but you know, he continued to live in his working-class neighborhood uh, while he was president of the city council and was mayor in in, uh, uh, in North Philadelphia, and uh, in, 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 in a still Irish part of North Philadelphia, and so in in the er, early on, those ward politics and those and, and things like that were very very much. Uh, important in sort of and, and I and I I would caution against calling it blue collar conservatism yet because I, I I try to you know right. talk about blue blue collar culture and, and politics prior to I mean most of the blue collar neighborhoods I write about were all on board for um, for Dilworth and, and and Clark in the fifties sure and it's only into the sixties and seventies that they start moving especially when Dilworth becomes president of the city council or not city council um president of the school board yeah. Um so there, the, the, those local fights they really matter and, and one of the you know you're, you're right I don't write as much about um about city council and to an extent it's I can you could, I couldn't do everything
0: No you can't do everything and, and, I,
1: and I was really folk trying to focus on the neighborhood level sort of uh politics and how they filtered up through uh through Rizzo Mhm Um so but th- no there is definitely uh, city council still matters, and wards still matter. Uh, a lot of the people, like, like so I write a, at least a little bit about uh, Franny Rafferty. Yeah, right. Who comes up, He and, and, you know, he comes up as a neighborhood organization leader, um, and will end up uh, councilman-at-large in Philadelphia from, I think, 75 to 91, I think? Yeah,
0: something like that, yeah. Something like that. And he was councilman-at-large, too. That was, uh, yes, so, uh, right. was elected by the whole city, I guess. Um, but he was very much a uh, neighborhood personality. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: God. Uh, working stiff with five kids, as he called himself in the 70s. Yes. Ready to fight
0: anybody. <laughs> Ready to fight anybody. Um, he, uh, yeah. Didn't he in John Street? I mean, he was in yes. several punching contests with John Street on city council. One of council. the
1: things that pained me the most to have to cut out of this. Um, was the that they staged an actual boxing match?
0: They did, yeah.
1: Like yeah. like Franny Rafferty and 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 Milton Street. it Mil- was Milton.
0: It was Milton. Milton. Uh, That's right.
1: Yeah. Who's still around? And <laughs> I heard recently is uh, I read recently is he's, he's an Uber driver in oh, Philly. God. Oh, in addition God. to everything else.
0: Yeah. Um, so anyway, then, like, there,
1: there was just so much I wanted to do that I you know just yeah. got to Well, cut it, point. it's
0: material for not just a book, but probably a very long Netflix miniseries soap opera.
1: <laughs> you uh, really could on, on some of those South Philly politics at that yeah, point.
0: Yeah, you really could. Um, so uh, what? Um, we're, before we get to Rizzo, let's talk about the police force. Yes. Um, because this is central to your story.
1: Absolutely. As
0: I was taking notes, I realized that uh, you, you go into great length about the importance of the police force to blue-collar politics and blue-collar culture. And I was wondering um, if it wasn't because this is one of the places in which a high school graduate could go from being a lower class high school graduate to becoming a member of the solid middle class. Is there an I mean, I'm, I, I found myself sounding like a Marxist to myself because uh, I keep I keep coming up with these economic justifications in my marginal notes. Anyone who knows me knows that's pretty hilarious. But um, the, is that part of this attachment to the police force?
1: A hundred percent. And one of the things I try to emphasize in the book, and I, I try to emphasize any, any, everywhere I can, is that one of the things we often take out of the equation when we talk about policing, especially in a lot of the recent history of policing lately, is that policing is a job. Yeah. Policing. Pol- and I, I, my my argument is, is that police history is labor history. And you yeah. need to think about it that way. This was and it wasn't just it was it was It was upward mobility. It was it was very, very common for police officers to to follow their father's footsteps and and trace that back. Um, And so, you know, when we get to one of the things I get to is uh, one of the heights of of the sort of law enforcement politics, um, one of the. I think as the vice president of the FOP, or Fraternal Order of Police, you know, is testifying that if things keep going like this, he's not going to let his son. He's not going to want his son to become a police officer. Mm-hmm. That is a huge statement to 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 threaten that sort of father son into the police department. That is that 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 was really telling how how you know how big they thought these these law enforcement uh, problems were, and so for. Yes, it was absolutely a high school education. Uh, and you got to go in and and, and, and make a pretty decent living because, um, you know, I talk a lot about the, the FOP and they are, you know, very much involved in the law enforcement politics and the cultural politics of the 60s and 70s. But they're also a labor union
0: mm-hmm. and
1: a pretty good one at that.
0: Yeah. What's amazing to me is you point out how relatively unimportant the FOP was before the 1960s. I, from, you know, growing up, uh, listening to Philadelphia news, you would never have imagined that that could ever be the case.
1: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I don't know if that, it's, it was, I mean, it just didn't have the same importance. Absolutely. Um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a. Uh,
0: let, me, let me, let me quote Tim Lombardo. Sure. Yet, yet early on, Few officers view the organization as anything more than "quote something you just do." End quote.
1: Yeah, it was it was a you know you you get to go to the um, the meeting hall and they have a bar there. Yeah, you know you you get to hang out after work and and you know they 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 were collective bargaining. They're affiliated with the AFL CIO, mm-hmm. um, and that was all important. But it's in the '60s that they become especially as as the the main um character I talk about there uh John J Harrington yeah. South Philly patrolman uh you know firebrand and, a, and uh,
0: also a, a political operator of obviously of genius um reading oh. about him I mean god a not a likable character to put it mildly but a, a, oh. a great a great union politician one of the great ones
1: well, absolutely and and I mean and I think that's it's so important to understand this as a labor history. That, yeah. that what they're talking about too, when they're talking about, because a lot of this gets into, um, you know, their safety, you know, their what they're up against when they're out in the streets. I, I, I you know, the one chapter is very much focused on uh, the the outcome of the 1964 Columbia Avenue riot and the police response to it, and so much of it is, is their safety yeah. and their, you know, their well-being, and that's, you know this was a a job hazard yeah and that's how they, they really frame this and and the one of the there are several reasons that uh civilian blue-collar whites latch onto this and racism is somewhere behind all of them but these are their friends and neighbors mm-hmm. they see they realize that this is a hard job and i that term comes up so frequently in Why we need to support the police? Why people needed to uh, give them more leeway? Why why cops should be in some cases free to use extra legal violence? Is because this is a hard job. Uh It's framed that way as as and that's and to you know working class blue collar white ethnics who you know know, whether in manufacturing or other or whatever kind of hard jobs they have. That's intuitive. This is that that hard work uh, is should be rewarded and should be and should be safe. And so, in addition to the the familial relations and the the neighborhood relations, it's I, I one of the things I stress in the book is that uh, where cops live, uh-huh. uh, the the by the 1960s, uh, not it's uh, close to 50 percent of the force lives in Northeast Philadelphia. Uh-huh. Because they by city charter they would not they were not allowed to move outside of the city limits, so they had to move somewhere. They moved somewhere suburb like that would be lifted in the and I don't think I even I don't know if I mentioned this in the book that rule gets lifted in the late '90s. hmm yeah. So the, and from that point, police start moving far more to the suburbs.
0: hmm What? Um, let's finally get what. Actually, one backstory is crime actually rising in the '50s and the '60s. Yes, it is. absolutely.
1: Um, but so is reporting crime. Yeah, you sure. know, it's it's it, this is crime statistics are, are notoriously hard to verify historically. Yeah. You know, what we know is is people's reports of crime are are going up. And was there I mean, you cannot deny that by the 60s and especially going to the 70s, the rates of murder are are definitely going up
0: uh that, so that is are, one thing we can measure is yes is, that, is, that is bodies one, bodies in the morgue
1: right that is absolutely can measure other stuff you know it's not and it's not it's certainly going up but it's also you know explained by factors that are are, are uh not necessarily as nefarious and as, as one might think like Think of the 1960s and 70s is the baby boomers coming of age,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And so it's like young people tend to be more prone to crime than others. And
0: Actually, young young men. Let's just put young it, men. Ma- men bet- unmarried men between the ages of 18 and 24. I mean, if and
1: there were a lot more of those in the 1960s and early 1970s than there were at any point in the previous, you know. In the previous few decades, because yeah. of the because of the baby boom, you um, had all sorts of factors like that, and so and then you have the you have this population uh, of African Americans from the South moving into the city in the fifties, and for a lot of white Philadelphians who have interacted rarely with African Americans, and uh, they begin seeing this as a criminal element, whether it was or not. Mm-hmm. and 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 so on the one hand yes there are certain crimes that are definitely going up just the rate of crime reporting is going up right along with it mm-hmm. you know and so it's it's very very hard to, to to German, but you can't deny you can't deny bodies in the morgue. that was happening, mm-hmm. uh, and and things like, and there were you know robberies were going up. Although by the you know by the late sixties, Rizzo's as as police commissioner Rizzo is saying, well, Philadelphia is the only city where crime's going down.
0: Yeah, but you suggest that he was he was fiddling with the t- t- stats that he was giving the FBI, which is I don't
1: come out and say that because I can't I, prove it. I said you suggest <laughs> suggest. Yes. Mm. Right 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 right. I can't prove it. But that was always a criticism of Rizzo, and, you know, I wouldn't put it past him.
0: Well, I mean, it's a, a classic bureaucratic maneuver anyway um, to do, do the, something like that. Um, what? Uh, let's. So now we get to Rizzo himself. We've been mentioning him, mentioning him, mentioning him. Uh, people who are not of a certain age and who are not from Philadelphia have no idea who he is. So who is Frank Francis Lazaro Rizzo? <laughs>
1: Francis Lazaro Rizzo is uh, a beat cop who worked his way up through the forest to become mayor of Philadelphia, born and raised in South Philly, um, born to immigrant parents. Um, His father uh, was at first he was a tailor. uh, He didn't make enough money doing that. So his father went into the police force and uh, in uh, in 1941. Rizzo followed his father into the police force. Rizzo had briefly worked for Midvale Steel, uh, one of the few, one of the bigger industries. Uh, and and he would later point to not only his F.O.P. membership, but his United Steelworkers one time membership as, as, you know, his part of his blue collar bona fides, which he didn't have to fake. Um, Frank Rizzo was an up from the streets, row house, row house, uh, Italian American, um, drops out of high school works midville steel very briefly follows his father's footsteps into the police department while in the police department he earns a reputation fairly quickly um being very he's an aggressive cop he is um you know by the book, like he, he, there are all sorts of stories about how impeccably dressed he would be. Yeah,
0: there's um, I'll put a on the show notes. I'll put a link to this, but there's actually, have you seen this from a a, a '60s TV true crime thing uh, narrated by hosted by Lee Marvin? Uh, no, there's uh, there's uh, there's Frank Rizzo. It was using actual officers to replicate <laughs> or act in a situation in which they had you know done something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. And there is I Fra- can't believe I
1: didn't see that. There's
0: Frank Rizzo in a beautifully tailored suit holding a shotgun.
1: He's always, I mean, he was, he, you know, stories about, in fact, like to the, to, that, to, to some cops, especially Irish cops, because you have that Irish Italian thing, you know, he always looked like he was, he was the Italian cop and he, was, he looked like, what are you doing? What's he doing? Is he trying to, you know, outshine us? Is he trying to, to do that? Um, but he becomes, he gets his reputation. In the 50s he he, uh, they call him the cisco kid he gets a reputation he for um uh, he's first he's in center city he's busting um coffee shops that were sort of hangouts for you know beats and homosexuals and others and that's where he starts getting his reputation and people start complaining about him there so they move into west philly and for the first time in his life he is interacting with with the African American community in West Philadelphia and within a very short amount of time uh, he's getting there that he's getting complaints um, from uh, from from the community about his treatment of African Americans. Um, you know, he gets moved around a bunch more times, but he keeps he gets every time he moves he gets a promotion. He's not, he's not being shifted. He's, you know, he, he is widely getting a reputation as a cop's cop. You know, well, he's,
0: how did, who was, who was his rabbi in the department? I mean, how was he, how did he get, how did he get, were complaints a sign of his success? Uh, Was that, was that the, yeah. the idea? I mean, who was protecting him because his, his dad was a patrolman. His dad had never risen in the force.
1: Right. No, I guess his dad was not nearly as ambitious.
0: No. I mean, so who was, do you know
1: how he wrote? Yeah. um, Well, I can't. The the, uh, police police commissioner in the 1950s, Gibbons. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, Gibbons took a took a liking to uh, Rizzo fairly early on okay Uh, and and you know the complaints would come in but they would see this as a sign of good policing yeah right you know like if if the community likes you too much you're probably doing something wrong you know and and so he kept getting promoted and promoted and and, uh, you know Gibbons would uh, ultimately promote uh, Rizzo uh, give him his first few promotions and he remained loyal to him uh, throughout his career uh, when a uh, cop when in uh, early 60s police commissioner Howard Leary who rizzo does not get along well with at all because Re- Leary is a uh, he's an educated police officer he's a he, he's interested in the in the most recent theories on how to build uh, police community relations and that's that's not the kind of cop rizzo came up uh, to be
0: is um is there a thing in in uh... A post-war policing phenomenon here is of being more aggressive and less interested in sort of interacting with the community.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, um, that is. I mean, and, and this is a you know uh, this is one of the more widely uh, or, or, or growing segments of of American historiography right now is, yeah. is is looking at the at these places and and so you have you have yes this this especially in the fifties this far uh-huh. more aggressive type post-war cop but then the sixties is a period of reform.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And Philadelphia is actually fairly integral to that history of reform because Philadelphia, on, under uh, Mayor Richardson Dilworth, under these liberal mayors of the 50s, uh, undertakes an effort uh, to reform the police. And the centerpiece of it is uh, uh, the, police, uh, the police advisory board, the first um, enacted board of civilian review of the police in the United States. Cops hate it. The, as we were talking about Harrington and the FOP, they were all out against it. Rizzo is opposed to it but Rizzo is is moving his way up through the force Rizzo is is uh, promoted to Deputy Commissioner of uniformed uh, forces in 1963 and so he can't as much as he dislikes this he can't really talk about it so the the, the foP sort of really lays the groundwork for the kind of tough, policeman turned politician that rizzo is going to
0: be so how does he parlay this so we've we've already established some some sort of groundwork here we've got this uh incredible loyalty to the police force amongst blue collar people in blue collar whites in um philadelphia um we've got uh rizzo as the wunderkind because he's really he's ridiculously young when he becomes deputy commissioner mm-hmm. isn't he yeah is he still in his 30s i think or, or, uh, or
1: forty two or something like that. Something, yeah, the early early forties. Um, so, but still very young.
0: Still very young, because he he rose up to captain very very fast.
1: Yes. Um,
0: and we've got now we've got the first well we've got a long standing civil rights tensions which are now emerging in North Philadelphia. So let's walk through those quickly to describe how Rizzo became to sort of political prominence.
1: So so. As deputy commissioner uh, and as commissioner, when he gets when he gets that promotion, Rizzo is never content to sit back and let other people do things. Rizzo is on the front lines and his, you know, after the Columbian Avenue riot, which he was there for. His, the, the, the where he's going to get his first big publicity is, is the effort to uh, integrate Gerard College.
0: What is the Columbia Avenue riot very briefly yes.
1: Oh sorry the Columbia Avenue riot was in 1964. It was one of um, several you know of the the big major urban uprisings that hit urban America throughout the 1960s. This is one of the earliest. Um, so 64, you have, uh, and it's only a month before Philadelphia is the Harlem riot. Mm-hmm. Then you have the Columbia Avenue riot, and one in Rochester. More famously, in 1965, you get Watts. By 67, you get Newark and Detroit. You know, and so this is this was, I mean, almost every major city had some form of riot. It was Columbia Avenue in North Philadelphia, um, a a an area of incredibly concentrated poverty with long standing tensions between the african-american community and the police uh late august uh you know a a traffic stop turns into rumors spread throughout the 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 city leads to three days of disorder Hmm. Um, and rizzo rizzo was on the scene for it and rizzo very famously had it out with then police commissioner Howard Leary because Rizzo wanted to go in cracking heads and Leary's plan to contain the riot was to to set up a perimeter and not let it spread and let it kind of die out on its own, which it did Mm -hmm. after three days. And Rizzo never quite forgave Howard Leary for for uh, what he saw as a betrayal.
0: And I have to say that it was... um... It was a very small perimeter too. As I, re- yeah. it, was, it was not a. It was not like oh, we're just not going there, and we're going to let all of North Philadelphia burn. It right. was what, like four blocks, I think, yeah. or something like that.
1: And if you in the in the grand scheme of of these things taking place in the 1960s, um, the Columbia Avenue riot is better contained. Um, it is it, uh, less catastrophic than than a lot of the other ones, and so and, and in fact, you know more the moderate elements of the civil rights movement um come out and thank leary mm-hmm. and 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 you know this this was not as bad as it could have been because uh howard leary uh, was more reasonable than somebody like a frank Rizzo would have been
0: toard mm-hmm. college
1: so so Fra- Frank rizzo is leading the response to Gerard the, the the efforts to integrate gerard college which is a a boarding school in north philadelphia for or for white orphan boys and it has been that way for a century um due to the will of 19th century financier stephen gerard who created this institution in his will on the condition that it stay all white and all male that's when north philadelphia was still largely white ethnic and, and and white by the middle of the 20th century this becomes a huge i mean and if you if you know the area it is a big like uh walled in giant uh, mansion in the middle of north philadelphia that is this gleaming white institution in the middle of an all-black area and it becomes just a symbol mm-hmm. of of the white power structure. I mean, it, it, truth be told, there while there were there, there were services, it could be um, it could render to to African-American boys and girls as well. It was more symbolic than anything else. And it became very, very important to the civil rights movement to to do something about this. Uh-huh. Uh, and by the 60s, uh that, it's that especially that particular uh, protest came out of the purview of Cecil B. Moore Mm -hmm. more was uh, outlandish and brash uh, often bragged about being the boss of North Philadelphia yeah and
0: in many ways he is the black Frank Rizzo I was (laughs) that's actually
1: a really good way of putting it (laughs) yeah and and you know he he brags about heavy drinking he doesn't you know and he's but he's he's effective and he is you know he's kind of you know, by the 1960s, carrying the anger. I should point out that he's the president of the local NAACP, which is nationally very, very moderate,
0: and does not like him. Um, no, but no, he, but no. he, he's a very much a former marine, and he likes. Yeah. You know, he trades on that. He's a yeah. he, he. You go into masculinity a lot in the book. I don't think we're going to have time to go uh, to hit on this. Uh, certainly, uh, Rizzo is a, a man's man. Cecil Moore is a man's man. Uh, The Black Panthers are trying to be a different kind of, you know, mass kind of men's men for their community. Uh, This runs throughout the book. Um, And, you know, I I frankly think that uh, when people start worrying about masculinity, that that shows some other kind of crisis is going on. Uh, George Washington did not worry about his manliness. Right. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah.
1: Um Yeah. well, this this pits Rizzo, you know, th- that's a good way to put it. I mean, he is he is, for all intents and purposes, the African-American uh, Frank Rizzo, at least what he means to that community in that in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And this puts them to head to head and they're head to head for months. And so, you know, prior to Gerard College, the only people that really knew Rizzo, I mean, the police department knew Rizzo because he was, you know, he was a cop's cop. He was the kind of guy that that. The the, the the rank and file really liked the people who had who Rizzo had patrolled in those areas, they knew him, but that wasn't everybody. It was it was Gerard College that put Rizzo front and center. And from there, he will just he will use the notoriety he gains in those protests to um, build his reputation. Uh, when um, Howard Leary will will leave to go because he because of of his handling of the Columbia Avenue riot, he is recruited to be the um, chief of police of the NYPD. Um, that, and so, uh, Rizzo will end up becoming um, second in command uh, under um, uh, Ed Bell. Bell is it Ed?
0: I forget. It's Bell. Bell. It doesn't
1: matter. It's not important. Yeah. He goes, he takes a, a little bit of sick leave, leaving, leaving Rizzo in charge. And Rizzo is not going to let this go. He, uh, plans a raid against the student nonviolent coordinating committee claims to have found dynamite and plans to blow up independence hall, you know, and he's just, there was, you know, there was always rumors that they planted the dynamite and I, you know, you can't prove it, but I also wouldn't put it past Rizzo either.
0: Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, the Snick is not. Let's put it this way: they're not the, They're not. They haven't reached Black Panther status yet. It's, it's right. Re- really, right. it's really hard to believe. But okay, yeah.
1: Stokely like Carmichael has has already started saying Black Power. But yeah,
0: yeah. He's he's radicalizing. He uh, despises King by that point. But it's still. It's a little early. It's a, a year or two too early. I, th- I think.
1: Right, so. right. But he's you know, uh, Rizzo is insistent on, on on ending any sort of Black Power. Um, presence in Philadelphia before it starts at any rate so uh, Bell goes out uh, has to is forced to uh, resign because it's due to illness and uh, James Tate names Rizzo acting commissioner and while acting commissioner um, Rizzo is uh, is there at the front lines of a massive student demonstration at the uh, school, board, uh, school board of Philadelphia uh, that was basically demanding more black teachers, uh, demanding um, uh, African history, yeah. uh, everything that was brewing up in the late 60s. And Rizzo, um, what people later would w- led what people later would call a police riot against African American students. And while this had liberals and civil rights leaders calling for him to be uh, calling for him to be fired. It drew an outpouring of support from white, blue-collar neighborhoods that um, uh, begged Tate to uh, install him as police commissioner permanently. Yeah. It became the centerpiece of Tate's reelection bid in 1967, which what very much hinged on these politics of law and order as he was up against then-Republican district attorney... Um, Arlen Specter. Arlen Specter. Yeah. Arlen Specter. Who was a,
0: was a law and order guy himself. So right?
1: and had a very very uh, yeah very much law and order guy he had a very clear shot at actually beating Tate because of the law and order, and while Arlen Specter never said he would not retain Rizzo, Tate made it sound like uh, like like Arlen Specter wasn't going to retain Rizzo, and that was arguably the biggest difference maker in that election.
0: And so and it sets it's the predicate for Rizzo being elected in 1971 eventually. Yes. that that, place, yes, that will, place riot.
1: Right. That yes. And so he will. Um, use his position as police commissioner. I mean, I don't know that there is a more famous police. You, you mentioned he's he's sort of a local figure, uh, but I don't think there's a more famous. Maybe uh, LAPD.
0: Yeah, maybe. Uh,
1: but other than that, him and Rizzo, are the, the two biggest cops in the in the country, when he runs for mayor, he runs on, as like the self appointed toughest cop in America.
0: Yeah, as a kid of about four or five in the 70s, I thought that Rizzo was both police commissioner and mayor. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that I never realized that he stopped being one. I just thought of
1: him as a cop who was also a mayor. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because he never... I don't think he ever really got rid of that. He no. always um he always referred to him as his for as his force as his police my my and,
0: my, my police my police yeah. always my police. and one of the
1: uh, i mean it honestly actually ended up being very beneficial for me because you know uh archives for police records are notoriously hard to get get to and one of the reasons i was able to is because he was still receiving all sorts of mail and newsletters and all sorts of stuff from the fop and the police as mayor which James Tate wasn't getting. Yeah, but but Rizzo wanted to be kept abreast of what the police was up were up to. Yeah, even after he, even after he was mayor, and so he was, yeah. It, it, you you would not be uh, you would not be that far off in thinking that he was both at the same time. No,
0: I, the the very. Uh, I think I just, uh, I can't believe I'm bringing this up, but those very, what's that guy, W.E.B. Griffin, uh, who mass produced novels, uh, but he's got some about the Philadelphia police force, which are interesting, the early ones. And there's a very thinly disguised Rizzo as mayor who is interfering with police department operations at any, uh, you know, you know, any whip stitch uh, just because he can't stop himself. Um, (laughs) uh, And that's, that that's pretty much accurate. Um,
1: well, for, to, to get to the, the, the broader question here, yeah. you know, he he becomes a, like he is standing up to those people who are who are threatening what blue collar whites in Philadelphia see as as traditional. Yeah. You know, um Gerard College is their tradition. The public schools are their tradition and and these you know militant black activists are trying to change all that. and Rizzo is trying to stop them. and there's and that's a, how that's how he becomes the, sort of their guy
0: now their their race is inextricable from that. Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, I,
0: completely. Uh, yet, yeah, in some ways, I have to say that's the least interesting part of the book.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> be- because
0: uh, this has been a long. It's a
1: well-told story, though.
0: It's That's a well-told story, right. and and in fact, it's um. You know, it's a very knee-jerk thing for an academics to say when someone says, "Well, these Reagan Democrats, oh, they became Reagan Democrats because they're racist." Um, it's a sort of "what's the matter with Kansas?" Uh, argument. Yeah, right. Argument, and I, and I... But it doesn't matter. It doesn't end up with like Kansas being redeemed. It means, in this case, those people are just, you know. They're 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 deep. It's theological. Uh, those people are sinners that cannot be redeemed. Um, so, so, what, what's interesting to me is the way this quickly transmutes itself into an us against them anti elitism as well. Yes, and, absolutely. And and, and as, as a thought experiment, I could imagine that happening without even the racist predicate. Um, I know it's, sure. I know it's weird. But uh, we talked a little bit about this before, um, but you can am- imagine this, this sort of a. a. Richardson Dilworth. I mean, the name <laughs> alone and all he dies on Nantucket, Nantucket, know. you know, know. Um, all these people. Oh, you know, I mean. Is the 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 Clark's and the Greens, okay, they're Irish from north northeast, but still, the uh, Clark is a Unitarian Universalist. I mean, my God, it's like one step down from being a Quaker. Um, these <laughs> these are the elites that have been running Philadelphia for three hundred years almost, um, and, and so, yeah, go on.
1: Well, well, so you know, I mean, and like God, like you were saying, God's in a triple uh, in a triple. Uh, uh, yeah. Cannot be taken out of the equation. No, but the people they blame for it, right, are these upper crust liberals. Exactly. I mean, Richardson Dilworth is. There's but hardly anyone will receive more ire than Richardson Dilworth, and and.
0: I mean, his name, his name alone, is, it's like a it's like a kick me sign is on his back, you know. It's right,
1: right, <laughs> and uh, so so geez, South Philly, um, it, it, Richardson. You know, the way these sort of progressives you know, looked at problems and these problems have solutions and and uh, South Philadelphia was getting overcrowded. There were too many cars in, in, in South Philadelphia. So to settle the problem of traffic in South Philadelphia, Richardson Dilworth in the 50s as mayor proposed a, um, a permit, a, a paid permit parking in South Philadelphia, and they never forgave him. Yeah. As yeah. this Richardson Dilworth character who who, you know, this guy, this this, I mean, Silver Spoon, uh, uh uh mainline not he's not a neighborhood guy i mean by the 1970s uh they're still talking about how how uh, dilworth wanted to make us pay for our parking spots and and he's been trying to get us ever since like like <laughs> they see it i mean they kind of see it as a conspiracy yeah so in the 60s dilworth is president of the school board and he is overseeing a state mandated integration plan for the public schools and they're i mean they're filtering this through this is an elite, for liberal, trying to put, uh, uh, the, trying to integrate our our neighborhood schools, and, and like the, oh he's just still trying to get back at us for fighting him for you know all of these other things, uh, and so they and the, my contribution to what what I what you you rightly say is is sort of well-worn ter- ter- territory, is the way. Class becomes there, you know, their class identities and class backgrounds sort of become central, not only in the fight against integration, but in the fight against people like Richardson Dilworth. Yeah, or, I think
0: I think that's absolutely right, and this is the really fascinating part of the book, um, and the way those become so much more important than the at- policy themselves. Now, yeah, right. I, I mean, I it, it, in a way, it, it does so much to explaining the policy less politics. Of um of the modern era, mm-hmm. um and it, it, you know, there's a there's an interesting way in which we could go from Dilworth's uh, parking spaces to Kenny's uh, tax on soda, uh, <laughs> but there it is interesting uh, uh, also that at the same time uh, there there is on one hand a complete reluctance to persuade people. Um, one could imagine attempts to persuade people that okay, maybe your first parking space is free, but for the second car, there's going to have to be some... But it, it these are usually handed down as edicts or diktats from... Yeah. E- even, right. even from City Hall, which is relatively close to people. This is not Washington. This is City right. Hall. On the other hand, we've got the soda tax or the parking space... Or the Rocky statue. We could get into that. Um, As Rocky uh, becomes a symbol of grittiness and Philadelphia, there's a movement to put a statue on top of the art museum steps. And that really is a middle finger from the blue collar whites to the upper class culture people. You know, those those the cultured elite right on the steps of their damn Philadelphia Museum of Art.
1: (laughs) We're going to put Rocky. You Which know? is where it is put, where it is in the in, in Rocky Three. That's where they unveil it. That's, well, they do, the,
0: but it was for a movie, Tim. It was a movie. It wasn't real yes, life. Okay, well
1: right. then, but then they tried to put it down at the Sports Complex where it was for a number of years. It and it's, but it was, but it was a movie, not real life. He's not a real, he's not a real sports he, <laughs> figure.
0: He, he's hey, look, both of you and I know that Rocky Balbo is one of the great Philadelphia athletes, and just like. I,
1: I am completely come, agree. Come
0: on uh, him. That and Wawa Wolf, and the Eagles will die for those. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and, and not the flyers anymore. And that's part of your story, too. But we're we're really out of time. Um, uh, and
1: uh, I'm the, sorry about that. if I rambled. Them. No, no,
0: no. It's all right. I, I, we could I you know, you and I could go on for another couple of hours probably about this. I'm, um, sure, I'm sure. And of that. the fact is now is that, you know, Philadelphia is no longer the fourth largest city. No, no. Um, there is no route. Um, it's really hard to figure out a way. Oh, I, I think about this let me, in relation to Camden, which I've thought about some. Um, back in the 50s, I think Camden, New Jersey, must have been one of the great places to be lower middle class in America. Right. Uh, yeah. you, you, worked, you could work at Campbell Soup. You could work at RCA Victor, Pressing Records. Uh, you could work at New York Shipbuilding. You walked home. There was a neighborhood bar. You could get a cheap beer before you went home to a meal in your own house. It wasn't much, but it was, you know, it was lower middle-class living. And within the period that you're talking about, that vanished like mist on a summer morning. Um, It went away, and it's never coming back. And you look at Camden now from the 76, uh, you're looking at, a place of lost dreams that are not coming back, um, and you could say that about much of Philadelphia. You could pop- say
1: that about much of Philadelphia. You could say that about almost all of urban America. You could say that about you know, the entirety of the Rust Belt. Yeah, you could say that. You know, that is that is the that is the story of the 1970s. Is is the, the decline of American manufacturing, or the or at least the um, uh, capital mobility, whether they, it's, yeah. it's place moving to the sunbelt or, or further uh, abroad.
0: And yet these passions, they, they live on. The, yeah. Well, anger lives on as the, the us versus them. Cause I mean, you know, looking at, at the elite, the elite record in Philadelphia is not great, <laughs> uh, but Frank Rizzo's record also was really bad. No. I mean, they were all, that's where I, I came away hating everybody at this because, uh, Nothing uh, really in the end uh, was even close to hitting the
1: middle of the target so Rizzo's record is abysmal it's in awful. the 70s it's all it's terrible, yeah. terrible. And, and half the things that people to this day give him credit for he did not do yeah no um, but but the, the, the point I, I sort of and and the, to sort of emphasize the the use of the word populist in the title what mattered is it is his performance wasn't what mattered no is that they had one of the uh, one of us as they say one of us in 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 city hall and that that mattered i have in
0: fact the definition of populism right in front of me <laughs> an appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups um, and if that ain't if that isn't Frank Rizzo nothing is right. um,
1: it, and and there was little he could do in the 70s no matter what he screwed up i mean the bicentennial oh my god <laughs> but 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 you couldn't I was couldn't so tell people otherwise it oh, was yeah. so
0: embarrassing i mean i was 7 and that was embarrassing
1: right i i mean yeah we I mean, sh- on, on a national stage
0: we should uh, international we should we were we should have been capital of the world for like a couple months and uh, right. you know right exactly the, it was crazy, um,
1: but you couldn't. You couldn't tell people in South Philly. You couldn't tell people in, in the Northeast. You couldn't tell them that Rizzo did that. Rizzo messed that up. Rizzo. Rizzo was their guy. Rizzo was the one who was putting people in their place. I, I've had people tell me, you know, oh, Rizzo. Uh, there was no crime in Philadelphia when Rizzo was mayor. Like, are you? Kidding me? Yeah. No. Do you know what the '70s looked like in Philadelphia?
0: Yeah, I, I I have a very vivid memory of what Market Street looked out like outside of Wanamaker's when got, yes, rest in peace, and it was uh, and it was um, it wasn't pretty. No. E- even when but... you're a, even when you're a five year old, uh, you realize this is not the way that civilization is supposed to be. <laughs> uh, the trash, the strip clubs, all the rest of it, you know.
1: But uh, but but as but it did even even in memory. Um, Rizzo was the guy Who got those things done even when he Did it
0: yeah I mean and as you know Looking at his his, uh, files And boxes I think he still had A direct line to City Hall because people would Send him all these letters and and whatnot uh, Begging for help and Mm -hmm. You know as he as you know And which he up till his death he would You know be still was fielding these Requests for services from people
1: Yeah I mean I, I don't I don't get into his later years nearly as much as I Would I wish I could because yeah, you know, publishers have a have
0: yeah.
1: a, <laughs> a word count they want you to stay under.
0: They, no uh, no it, sense of fun. <laughs> yeah,
1: he's got. I mean, he's doing a radio show. Yeah. Like you know, he's he's doing a limbo shtick before limbo was.
0: Yeah.
1: Or I, at least early limbo was.
0: Yeah, and at the same time responding to a request to fill in a pothole, as I recall. Right. I mean, that right. was the it was the weirdest thing. You know, there was the, the it, it combined both. He was like the mayor on the radio, uh, except he wasn't mayor.
1: Right, right. Although he tried, he never he never gave up.
0: No. So, uh, where should we leave this uh, conversation? How how would you like to sum this up as we uh, t- tie it up with a neat bow? No, 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 pressure.
1: Oh yeah. Um, it's a so so. It is a, a in a lot of ways a very hyper local story. You know, that that uh, I even point out there are some things about this story that only make sense in Frank Rezzo's Philadelphia, sure. like some of these spatial characteristics of the city, some of the cultural geography. Um, but I also think it's a bigger story. Yeah, uh, I think it's a bigger story about modern politics and not just about working class politics, about especially the, the, this this rise of, you know, populist relatability, you know, that that especially you see. Um, from Reagan, you know, you remember, uh, during the W. Bush years, he seems like a guy you could have a beer with, you know, or, 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 or
0: like the, or the reverse of that in the George H.W. Bush uh, years. I mean, that worked for Clinton's favor,
1: right? No, Uh, right. right?
0: You know, I mean, we've seen this now on both sides of the political, on every side of the political spectrum. It's really quite extraordinary. The,
1: the right has been better at it, I think, Mm. um, or at least because, because they think they have so well, um, used Mm anti-elitism uh to a to a a, an astounding degree successfully yeah um to the you know and i I, as i I do in the book at least very briefly mention uh donald trump Mm -hmm. who who is sometimes has been referred to as a blue-collar billionaire Mm -hmm. yep you know and and using that that you know he says it like it is yeah you know, yeah. that's very similar to, to what people said about Rizzo
0: No, it is very true. Uh, it is, uh, listening to Trump, I often think of talk radio in 1980s Philadelphia. Yeah. And uh, there is there is there is the certain callers. Um, if you said, hi, I'm Don from Queens, if you put that in front of a lot, someone said, if you say, put, hi, I'm Don from Queens before any tweet or speech, then you begin to contextualize it. And I've thought about that in reading this book and putting it and relating it to uh, Rizzo's Philadelphia. And and, and, and post Rizzo, Philadelphia, in the 1980s, in many ways that that continued.
1: Yeah, so so I guess to to wrap things up, I would say like it is a local story, but I, I, I hope there is something more or people will find something more in it that is um, broader about politics and, and kind of uh, where we where we are at the moment. Um, that was all very fortuitous when I, I, mean, this, this was, this was started a decade ago. Yeah. <laughs> this was my, di- this was my dissertation. I had no idea that this was going to be um, so resonant in the past uh, few years,
0: but. Well, I think that's an indication uh, that you're onto
1: something. I, well,
0: So yes. my guest today has been Timothy Lage Legembar- Timothy J. Lombardo. He is the author of Blue Collar Conservatism. It's available from the University of Penn Press, and is worth a read. Uh, Tim, thank you so much
1: for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.
0: For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddatt. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.